Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Timeless Science Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Bella Anima. I'm excited to present to you Anathema Part 1. It's 1947. There is tale of something sinister brewing on the bottom of the world. A battered U.S. Navy flotilla led by famed polar explorer Admiral Richard E. Byrd sails into a Chilean port. Part of an expedition that was officially called the United States Navy Antarctic Development Program, more famously known as Operation High Jump. The operation consisted of 4,700 military personnel, one aircraft carrier, and a number of naval support ships and aircraft. Mysteriously, High Jump was cut short, lasting only eight weeks. The Americans told the Chilean media that they had taken massive casualties resulting from a hostile encounter with strange aircraft. Admiral Byrd himself admitted that they had encountered a new enemy that could fly from pole to pole at incredible speeds. Upon arriving stateside, the entire ordeal would be covered up and silenced by the Navy. No sailor would ever tell tale of the incident again. Unaware of the happenings, a man will find himself in the middle of another worldly conspiracy. Anathema, Part 1 Written by D.A. Augustine. Narrated by Christian Neal. It's a typical sunny day for a mid-Pacific island. Bullets fly over a soldier's foxhole as deafening explosions go off around him. Jackson! he hears from a nearby foxhole. Help me! the voice continues. Jackson pokes his head up for a few moments, just long enough to fire off a couple of rounds from his trusty M1 Garant. He takes a couple of seconds to breathe, knowing that climbing out of his foxhole means almost certain death. But that's exactly what he does. He climbs out and runs over to the foxhole that was calling out to him, but alas, he is too late. A Japanese soldier is stabbing the now helpless soldier to death with a bayonet. Jackson shoots the hostile before rushing to his fellow soldier's aid. Jackson, it's too late for me the dying man says softly. But there's something I need you to do for me. Jackson leans in closely to hear what the man needs. The man looks straight into his eyes and screams, Wake up! Jackson wakes violently as his alarm clock rings. He looks over at the clock. He is shocked to learn he has slept in. Shit, I can't be late again, he says to himself. He hurries to his closet puts on his button-up work shirt and rushes out of the door. Finally, after a short drive through San Francisco, he arrives at his worksite, an unfinished apartment complex. He puts on his hard hat, exits his truck and begins working on a steel girder, trying to blend in as if he had been there all along. Then he is confronted by what he feared would happen. The foreman noticed his tardiness. Jackson! the burly middle-aged man screamed out. Uh, yes, Mr. Moore, Jackson answered. My office, now, the foreman snarled. 
Jackson sighs before following the grumpy foreman into the makeshift office. The foreman sits behind his desk and lights up a cigar. Jackson sits on a hard metal chair on the opposite side of the desk. The foreman speaks first. Look, I like you, Jack, but you put me in a real tough spot here. Jackson speaks up. Uh, listen, sir, I... The foreman stops Jackson in his tracks. Uh-huh, you said sorry the past five times. Jackson sighs and puts his head down. The foreman continues. Listen, I know things have been a bit hard since you've gotten back stateside. Believe me, I know. My kid brother Lewis had to move back in with my folks. Jackson tunes the man's words out as his mind fills with racing thoughts. I can't believe this is happening again, he thinks to himself. He knew his landlord wasn't going to give him any more leeway on his rent being late. Jackson focused back into the conversation, just in time to hear the foreman say, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna have to let you go. Before he knew it, he was back in his truck on his way home. He arrives home, parks his truck, and rests his head against the steering wheel. He simmers for a few moments, before unleashing a tirade on his steering wheel, punching and cursing it. Suddenly, he hears a knock on his passenger side door. He is puzzled to find a man with a nice suit on, complimented by a fedora in this part of town. The man was looking straight at Jack, smiling whilst clutching a black briefcase. A normally cautious man, Jackson reaches over and unlocks his passenger door. The man opens the door and pokes his head in. Mr. Jackson, I presume? Yeah, who's asking? The man chuckles before asking, uh, May I sit? Jackson nods agreeingly. The man sits and places his briefcase on his lap. Jackson, annoyed, questions the man. Um, can I help you? Oh, no, 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 Mr. Jackson. I'm afraid you cannot. However, I have something to offer you. Ah, oh, look, pal, I'm not interested in religion. Oh, Mr. Jackson, no, no, no. Oh, I'm not here to save your soul, goodness, no. I'm here because myself and those whom I work for believe that men like you deserve more. I mean, you put your life on the line for your country, faced unimaginable hardships and witnessed horrific atrocities. And after you come home, you get treated like dirt, going from dead-end job to dead-end job trying to keep your rent paid. Now, people with your skills and experience are treated with the respect that they deserve in our organisation. The man opens his briefcase. It's empty except for a small black business card. He takes it out and hands it to Jackson. Jackson looks it over. On one side, it has an address printed on it. On the other side, Verona is written in fancy cursive. You could be the latest veteran to thrive with us. Who are you? Who is it you work for? We're friends, Mr. Jackson, I assure you. You'll find that we treat our friends well. If you want to know more, be at that address tomorrow at 6am. The boastful stranger exits the truck and disappears into the crowded sidewalk. Later, Jackson walks down the hall to his apartment. On his way, he sees his landlady exiting her unit. 
Jackson is filled with dread as he knows he won't be able to pay rent without a job. Better to go ahead and let her know. Maybe he can work something out? Tense, he approaches her. Hey, uh, Joanne, um, can I talk to you for a moment? Shouldn't you be at work? She asked, concerned. Uh, well, <laughs> that's what I wanted to talk about. <sighs> Rent might be late this month. Rent? What are you talking about? You paid up till the end of the year. What? There must be some mistake. No, a few dapper men in suits came in and paid me. Said they were friends of yours. Jackson, puzzled, walks into his home and sits on the bed. He pulls the business card from his back pocket and looks it over. The next morning, he finds himself driving to the address written on the business card. It leads him to an empty, abandoned shipyard. He parks his truck in front of the decrepit gate guarding the docks. He exits his truck, leaving his headlights on so he could see in the darkness. Hello? he calls out. He looks around, confused. He sees nothing but trash and a janky, fallen-apart dock. He looks down at his watch. It reads 6.01am. <sighs> Must have been a prank, he mutters to himself. He gets ready to turn around and leave, but something catches his eye. A plank sticking up at the edge of the dock has something carved into it. He can't quite make out what it says, so he walks to the edge of the dock. He looks at the plank's writing, and in cursive it reads, Verona. Suddenly, the water at the edge of the dock starts to bubble up, becoming disturbed. Jackson is stunned as a black submarine surfaces right next to the dock. The submarine hatch opens, and an older man with a handlebar moustache hops out. Jackson assumes he is the captain because he is wearing a dark blue officer's uniform. He steps onto the dock, clipboard in hand. He looks down at the clipboard, then back up at Jackson. Are you Wolfgang Jackson? he asks. I am, Jackson replies. The captain steps over and hands the clipboard over to Jackson. All right, sign her. Wait, what is this? Jackson asks nervously. It's your contract, the elder captain states impatiently. Jackson looks down at the contract. It reads like your typical wordy law document. But then Jackson comes across a line that makes things clearer. It describes his employment as a special contractor for the Gideon Foundation. Also attached is a hefty non-disclosure agreement. Come on now, son, I haven't got all day, the elder captain says. I can't just leave. I mean, I, I need to tell my parents I'm leaving. They'll worry about me. The elder captain smiles. Don't worry. As soon as you sign on the dotted line, the foundation will manage everything. Jackson gulps, taking a couple of moments to think it over. He wasn't keen on going back to fighting. However, the job would pay him more in three weeks than he had made the previous year. And after all, it is a short-term contract. Jackson signs and hands the clipboard back to the captain. The captain looks it over, satisfied. He lifts his thumb up in the air. Then a second pair of headlights lit up a short distance away. The car pulls up beside Jackson's truck. Another trench coat wearing suit steps out and into Jackson's truck. Both vehicles drive away shortly after. 
The captain opens up the hatch and signals for Jackson to jump in. Jackson does, finding that he was not alone. A half dozen crew members are also below, each performing a different task. The captain jumps down behind Jackson and secures the hatch. Over here, the elder captain commands. He leads Jackson through the bowels of the sub until they reach a door at the far end. He opened the door, and on the other side was a lavish velvet red room, equipped with a bar and a large round table. Seated around the table were other warriors. Closest to the door sat a tall, heavy-set man with a long ginger beard. Seated beside him was a man wearing a cowboy hat. Across, an African woman with long braided hair. Next to her sat a man who made the hair on Jackson's neck stand up. He was a Japanese man, with long black hair pulled up in a bun, brandishing two long swords on his back. All right, this is the last one, the elder captain states, before pushing Jackson into the room and shutting the door behind him. Jackson slowly walks towards the table. So, what's your story? The big bearded man asks in a thick Eastern European accent. Oh, you know, just living the dream, the ex-marine replies. <laughs> the bearded man jokes as he laughs hysterically. Come, sit. After the icebreaker, Jackson sits and gets to know his new co-workers. They tell him about themselves, how they were recruited, that they too have no idea where the sub is taking them. The bearded man's name is Jan, a Polish Second World War veteran turned anti-communist freedom fighter. Said his heart was still in Warsaw, only took the offer because he needs money to finance his group. Naya, the African woman, is a hardened merc, known throughout Europe for her deadly accuracy with her dual revolvers as well as her sky-high body count. She'd been on the run from the Franco regime after a high-profile assassination in Valencia. She said she'd taken the job after a man in Paris offered her triple her normal fee. The man with the cowboy hat Jackson already recognised as Guy Gunray, a famed Australian big game hunter. He was approached while doing an interview for a newspaper in Melbourne. He was promised financing for his upcoming wildlife documentary. In exchange, the mysterious foundation wanted to use his famed tracking skills. The Japanese man was a mystery. It didn't help that he sat silent at the table. He obviously knew English pretty well. When someone asked him if he wanted a drink from the bar, he politely declined with a, Oh, thank you. All Jackson could gleam is his name, you. Jackson tried hard not to feel contempt for the man, whose people he had fought for three years. His gaze caught the man's attention, their eyes locked. This made Jackson's blood run cold. Jackson's attention is stolen away by Naya when she informs him that the bar is stocked. Guy eggs him on, saying, You guys still drink in the States, right? At first, Jackson was hesitant to drink, but as the hours began to pile up, he relented and went to the bar to get his usual. A whiskey, neat. He pours himself one and knocks it back, then pours another out of boredom. He continues the trend until he loses count. Finally, he puts the lid back on the whiskey and rubs his eyes. Drunk, he sits on the floor next to the bar, slumps over and passes out shortly after. J. 
Jackson is woken up by the sound of the door to the velvet room being swung open. The elder captain walks in and announces, We've arrived, triumphantly. Jackson and the others follow the captain back through the submarine. They exit the vessel out into a giant underground harbour. Aside from a few other submarines being docked, the facility was completely empty. The harbour is dark, with only a few lights bolted on the rock ceiling above. Finally, a man in a suit comes out of the shadows and waves to the captain. This is where I leave you, the elder captain says to the group, and afterwards heads back to his vessel. The man in the suit looks just like the guy Jackson met back in San Fran. The man walks towards the group and greets them. Welcome. I hope you found your travel accommodations comfortable. The Polish man speaks up. What's cut the noise of this? And tell us why we're here. The man in the suit smiles and replies, You're here for a job. Don't worry, you'll be briefed at the appropriate time. The Polish man snickers, not happy with the answer. Now, please follow me. The man leads them to a dormitory that is accessible through an elevator on the harbour's far side. Each warrior has their own room in the dorm. There is food in the kitchen down the hall. Help yourselves. We only ask that you get plenty of rest. You'll be briefed at 0500 hours and training begins at 0600. After a good dinner, Jackson finds himself lying awake in his bunk. He had the same feeling in the pit of his stomach that he had back in the war. What am I doing? he asks himself. He wrestles with that question until he eventually falls asleep. The next morning, Jackson and the others are taken to a room with desks and a projector. Suddenly, the man in the suit shows up, with a few more men carrying wooden crates with Gideon Foundation written on them. They sit one crate in front of each warrior. Yan opens his first. The box contained a black military uniform and a PPSH Soviet machine gun. Naya was next. Her crate contained a black uniform and two black revolvers that almost doubled the size of her current Webley revolvers. The famous hunter Guy opens his crate and finds the uniform as well as a high-powered sniper rifle. Jackson is next up. His crate contained the black uniform as well as a M1 Garand. He is shocked when he looks at the serial number and finds it's the one he used in the war. The Japanese warrior opens his crate. It has the uniform and a matte black compound bow with incendiary arrows. He leaves the black uniform and takes the bow and arrows. The other men leave and the first man with the suit is the only one left. He clicks on the photo projector. You'll be heading to a remote island about 492 kilometres south of Chile. The man looks directly at Jackson. That's roughly 300 miles for Americans. Everyone laughs before the man continues. A scientist belonging to our foundation went missing in a large subterranean formation. We suspect foul play either by competitors, wildlife or an insider. The man hands out a picture of the doctor to each merc. The picture depicts a dark-haired man with a thick moustache and dark, wide eyeglasses. We hope with your combined experience you'll find out what happened and bring him back, alive or otherwise. If you don't listen to a thing I say, listen to this. You'll face things in the formation that would challenge even the fiercest of warriors. The man continues on with the briefing. 
After more technical babble, they are given time to change. Later, the group was led to a vast open training area. They are split up and sent to different areas of the training facility. Jackson is led to a dark cave-like room. He can't see anything, not even the weapon he is holding. It didn't take long before he was alarmed, as he saw a silver silhouette of a form slip into the room. He pulls back the slide of the rifle, takes aim and waits, as adrenaline rushes through his veins. For a few moments, nothing happens. Just silence. A trench coat-wearing form appears right in front of Jackson and knocks him over. Then out of the form's jacket sleeves, where hands should be, came fire. The fire bursts out toward Jackson. He was close to being engulfed by the flames, but he dove out of the way just in time. The flame gave Jackson light to see by. He saw the form. It was just a trench coat anchored by a black hose coming from the ceiling. Jackson, quick on his feet, fired a couple of rounds at the hose before the form could blast more fire at him. The rounds shred the hose, causing the form to fall to the ground and explode. Then, three more forms slip into the room, each hurling balls of flame toward Jackson. He keeps calm. Tapping into the primal warrior mindset he had first encountered fighting in the Pacific, he dodges the flames and tactically takes out all three. The training has ended and Jackson is led back to the dormitory. The others trickle in throughout the day, all coming back with strange stories of what they had encountered during the training. The training began again early the next morning, then again the next day. The warriors trained for 13 days straight. On the 14th day, they were not led to the training bay, but to an underground runway with a black cargo plane on it. There, the suit is waiting for them. Congratulations, you've finished the training. I'm fully confident in your abilities to rescue the doctor. More Gideon agents arrive to hand out rations and ammunition. They load the warriors up with three days of food, a half gallon of water, and as many bullets as they could carry. Godspeed, the man in the suit says, as the team boards the aircraft. Jackson looks out of the window, watching the plane lift off, and fly out of a giant hole at the end of the runway. The plane had a quite different tone than the submarine. It had no velvet rooms or worldly luxuries. It was a strict paramilitary vessel with an almost robotic crew. These airmen seemed to ignore the warriors for hire, just focusing on their task. Even the captain was cold in conversation. After an hour or two of travel, the aircraft descends below the clouds within eyesight of the remote island. It's time, the captain says. The crew opens the hatch and hands each warrior a parachute pack. Jackson and the others each step to the edge of the exit ramp. Yu jumps first. After falling for a few moments, he pulls his cord and deploys his chute. He floats gently in the air for a while before touching down on the gravelly beach. The plane circles around the island, Jan jumps next, then Guy and Naya after. All touch down safely. Jackson is last up. He looks down at the tiny island. It has few trees, but an enormous hill with a cave-like entrance. The entrance is visible from a mile away. The captain tosses him what looks like a flare gun. You'll need this. 
the aircraft hits heavy turbulence, forcing Jackson to jump suddenly. He falls haphazardly through the air. He frantically reaches for his ripcord. He finally grabs the cord and pulls it just in time for his parachute to be effective. He lands hard on the island's outer perimeter. The rough landing knocks the wind out of him. He kneels on the beach, waiting to catch his breath. Naya runs over to help him. After helping him up, she notices the flare gun-looking device Jackson is holding. What's that? What is that? she asks. I think it's a flare gun, Jackson replies. That don't look like any flare gun I've ever seen, Guy says as he walks over. But before Jackson can answer, another suit-wearing man emerges from the cave mouth. Yu was already by his side. Jackson couldn't help but notice the man looks just like the one from San Francisco and the Gideon base. Ever here, the man shouted. Jackson and the others reached the cave's mouth. Instantly, the group's eyes were drawn to what laid at the end of the cave. A wall of blinding purple light with cloudy mist leaking out of it. The man in the suit points to the wall of light. That's your way in. Which one of you has the device? The crew looks around, confused. Uh, you mean this? Jackson says, holding up the apparatus he had thought was a flare gun. That's it. Give it to the doctor when you find him. He'll know what to do with it. He leads the mercenary bands to the wall of light. Okay, go through one at a time. We don't even know what's on the other side, Jan says with a chuckle. The doctor, the man answers emotionlessly. Before Jan can respond, you leaped through the light. Okay, who's next? The suit asked. Jackson steps forward. The man grabs Jackson by his shoulder and leads him to the light. He stops right before the light and whispers, Stay upright, my friend. And with that, he pushes Jackson through. The light blinds him for a few moments. He feels himself falling, oddly. Falling as if he was made of feathers, slow and soft. He finally opens his eyes and is stunned by what he sees. End of part one. Interested in what Jackson sees on the other side? Tune in next time for part two. Timeless Science Fiction is a production of AHD. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Bella Anima, reminding you to stay timeless. <laughs>